Here, take this. You're going to need it. You're going to stay locked in there until you learn not to say no to your mother when she tells you you're a girl. And you'll probably have to make wee-wee. And you'll squat over this. That's all that thing of yours is for, making wee-wee. You clear on that? Answer me. You clear on that, Norma? Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcasts that I do if you're interested in getting more of the types of reviews and insight and film history that you hear here. I do encourage you to check out the other podcast called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the fourth of this five-part series looking at the psycho films, not only of the 1980s, but one, of course, was done in 1960. Today, the film I'm going to be doing is from 1990, and it is following Psycho 2, Psycho 3. Of course, we got Psycho 4. The full title being Psycho 4 The Beginning. Psycho 4 The Beginning is an R-rated film. It does have violence, some nudity, and sensuality. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. Anthony Perkins returns once again to play Norman Bates. Henry Thomas, Olivia Hussey, CCH Pounder, Warren Frost, Donna Mitchell, and Tom Schuster also appear in the film. The director this time out is Mick Garris, and the screenplay by Joseph Stefano. Now, the impetus for making Psycho 4 started with uh, two gentlemen called George Zaloom and Les Mayfield. Zaloom and Mayfield, they worked as assistants to producer Hilton Green on the set of Psycho 2. And during this time, they started coming up with an idea for another potential sequel. This was a riff on Hitchcock's Spellbound, except their version was going to have an amnesiac Norman Bates in a mental institution who takes on the role of a doctor there. And meanwhile, there's a serial killer on the loose who is copycatting Norman's murders. Green felt that there was potential there and advised Zaloom and Mayfield to take their idea to MCA president Sid Sheinberg. Now, there were other psycho sequel scripts that were proposed before, including one that was made by Anthony Perkins and Charles Edward Pogue, That was nixed after their Psycho 3 fizzled at the box office. But the timing did seem right when Mayfield and Saloom approached Sid Sheinberg because it's not that Sheinberg was really excited by their particular story, but he had been actively looking at that time for some sort of high-profile project to help promote the opening of Universal's proposed new theme park in Orlando, Florida. So over the next 18 months, Zaloom and Mayfield, they started constructing several different drafts of their idea, but none ended up approved by the Universal Brass. Hilton Green did concede to them that maybe not a lot more could be done with the Norman Bates character moving forward. In fact, the only interesting parts of their drafts involved flashbacks to Norman's childhood that the first Psycho that was written by Joseph Stefano merely hinted at. But this observation gave the screenwriting team a new idea. Maybe they should approach Joseph Stefano and see if he would help them write the next revision. During the making of Psycho, 
Joseph Stefano, he had developed a backstory of Norman's boyhood and his teenage years with his domineering and sexually repressive mother. Norman was in love with his mother. He even fancied being her lover, but mother repeatedly teased him into a reaction and often scolded him cruelly for it. Ultimately, jealousy and humiliation overwhelmed Norman when she took on a new lover. Incest illusions were maybe a little too taboo to explore in the 1960 movie, but they always remained in Stefano's mind. In his backstory, mother entices Norman and then punishes him for his reactions that she eggs on. And then she feminizes him by calling him her daughter as a punishment, forcing him to wear a dress, calling him Norma. He makes the association eventually that desire is something that must be punished. After Norman's murder, eventually of his mother and her paramour, he continues to punish the women who dare arouse the mother figure within him to kill them too. Despite many accolades for his work on the 1960 film Psycho, Stefano felt that that work pigeonholed him for the rest of his career. Studios viewed Stefano only as a writer of macabre horror and suspense. As Stefano put it, they never could stop praising him for the work he did on Psycho, but they also could never forgive him for it. Stefano stayed clear of participating in writing any of the Psycho sequels, which he thought were a misguided idea. He felt that they leaned on camp a little too much for the purpose of recycling elements of the original film purely for commercial purposes. They really didn't have any kind of social value that he thought merited their production. What's worse, he felt that they viewed therapy as useless. Norman reverted to his psychopathic ways often very easily within days of being released. Stefano happened to be a firm believer in therapy. That was one of the reasons he was very keyed in on the psychotherapy of the original Psycho. He felt it was vile to suggest that once a psycho, always a psycho. That seemed to be the recurring theme in these sequels. And if that were true, they might as well not bother to try to rehabilitate anybody because, according to these films, they only are going to kill again once released. In addition to that, once Psycho established that Norman was a schizophrenic cross-dressing killer, future stories really held little surprise for audiences. Stefano felt it would probably be much more interesting to try to explore the root of what made Norman. That way, maybe a prequel, he surmised. We've never seen a living, breathing version of Norman's mother or what she did that eventually raised a monster. We only knew mother as a mummified corpse and the interpretation that we got about her from Norman's deranged mind. Universal, however, wasn't keen on Stefano's prequel idea because a pure prequel had no part for Anthony Perkins, who they felt was necessary to sell a psycho film. Stefano did come up with a compromise. The story could have a framing device, a modern-day Norman being played by Anthony Perkins, talking about his younger days. We would flash back. As long as 70% of the script was Norman's backstory, Stefano agreed to come on board and write the new entry. Stefano's original pitch was to open the film in the present day. He envisioned the Oprah Winfrey show, and Oprah's topic that day was this episode on those who killed their mother. They end up having somebody call in. It's Norman Bates. Norman relates the story of his early murders to the Oprah Winfrey audience. He talks about the upbringing with his schizophrenic, manipulative, sexually and emotionally repressive mother that preceded them. The execs were so impressed with this initial idea, they had Stefano pitch it immediately 
to Anthony Perkins. Now, in the three days between the pitch meeting with the Universal execs and visiting Perkins' house to sell him on this idea, Stefano had come up with a few more story elements. One included, after years of intense therapy, Norman was happily married. He had a stepson that he adored, and he was seemingly well-adjusted in life. However, reminiscing about his past on The Oprah Winfrey Show triggers Norman, and that puts his new family in mortal danger and would leave audiences in suspense about what he might do to them in the end of the film. Perkins loved this idea. He would have to stretch in the role to play a Norman we'd not seen before. This would make it something new and different. He would not be bored making it. Here we had a Norman that not only loved a woman, but he also had something to lose. Something to lose by his own hands, no less. We would also see Norman's relationship with his mother and how truly evil she was and realize what turned Norman Bates to murder when she takes on her new lover. We also learn what triggers Norman to put on his mother's dress and wig and to kill women who arouse him or men who threaten to come between him and his mother. Stefano set to write his first draft. He completely ignored the sequels. He felt that they were needless. However, Hilton Green did say that series fans were going to be confused because Psycho 2 did reveal that Norma Bates was not his real mother and Psycho 3, even though that reversed somewhat that backstory, Psycho 3 did have Norman going into a mental institution, presumably for the rest of his life. Stefano decided he was going to dismiss Psycho 2's alternate mother twist as a complete lie that was fabricated, and he would inject a little bit of dialogue in Psycho 4 that mentions that Norman's last murder was four years in the past. It had been four years by the time Psycho 4 did come out since Psycho 3, so that would at least match up. Even though that was an absurdly small amount of time given the amount of murders that he commits in Psycho 3, Stefano reasoned that Norman might have undergone very hard therapy in this experimental institution that achieved amazing results, and that would be followed by a re-entry of Norman into society under constant supervision because his wife was a psychiatrist that he fell in love with at the hospital, so he was constantly being monitored by her. After Psycho 3's poor performance at the box office, Universal still felt that a theatrical release was not really financially viable. Stefano was unhappy with Universal's decision here because he thought that his story was going to be embraced by the fans of the first film primarily. Whether or not they enjoyed the sequels or even saw them at all, they could easily follow along if they just saw the first film. And in fact, it would probably be better if they too also ignored those sequels. Universal still, they passed the project to the new division that was run by Ned Nall, MCA Television Entertainment, MTE, which started making shows and movies for cable television specifically. MTE, they made a deal with Showtime Entertainment to debut Psycho 4 on their pay TV network where it would exclusively run for three years. Hilton Green stepped in as executive producer, while Zaloom and Mayfield became the line producers. A new Psycho House, a new Bates Motel, identical to the one at Universal Studios Hollywood. Those were going to be constructed in Orlando, and they would be a permanent part of its new Universal Studios tour. Exterior edifices and interior sets were painstakingly recreated using blueprints from the original 1960 Psycho film, the same blueprints that were used to make the Psycho sequels, along with props from the original Universal archives. Production was slated for late 1988, but script elements deemed too expensive, as well as a writer's strike, resulted in several delays. 
Not only was Oprah Winfrey herself unlikely to appear in a made-for-showtime movie, especially one in the Psycho series, but even a fictional TV show with a live audience was going to be expensive to try to replicate even without Oprah. And besides, Oprah herself had a very traumatic childhood, so she probably was not likely to want to do a prurient film that was a pure fantasy like this. Stefano reluctantly changed the nature of this TV talk show to a late-night radio call-in program that Norman happens to be listening to, even though Stefano did feel it was less visually interesting. Talk radio in 1988 proved that it could still be somewhat riveting if the drama was done right. In Stefano's script, it's Norman's birthday. He's waiting for his wife, a psychiatrist who helped him in the mental institution, to come home from work to celebrate that birthday. He listens to Fran Ambrose, this late-night radio talk show host covering a topic Norman happens to be an expert in, matricide, and the guest happens to also be Dr. Richmond, the psychiatrist who treated Norman in the original Psycho. Ambrose draws out Norman. Norman's using the pseudonym of Ed, that's likely in honor of Ed Gein, the serial killer who inspired Robert Block to write the original Psycho novel. Ambrose gets Norman to talk about his adolescence. Norman relates how his mother's severe mood swings, her psychological abuse, her sexual repression drove him eventually to commit murder. Ambrose ultimately has to keep Norman on the line. She's trying to prevent Norman from following through on his early threat that he's going to kill again. Stefano explores here themes of how parents can destroy children without meaning to. Before giving it a chance, Norman assumes that the Bates psychosis is somehow hereditary, so when his wife announces her pregnancy after secretly stopping the birth control Norman insisted that she take, he resorts to familiar ways of dealing with conflicts, violence, aiming to kill the woman he loves to stop her from having the world's next psychopath. Now, one potential hiccup did occur in March of 1990, as they started gearing up for the production, the tabloid rag, the National Enquirer, they published a story about Anthony Perkins, that he was HIV positive. That did threaten to put the insurance that was done on the film in jeopardy. Now, Perkins immediately denied the story that it was pure fabrication. Hilton Green did accept Perkins' word on this. He did not force him to take a physical examination. Perkins' wife, Barry Berenson, later claimed that the story for the Enquirer did come about when Perkins was treated for facial palsy. And while he was in the hospital, one of the nurses took a sample of his blood and discovered he was positive for HIV. And rather than informing Perkins and his family, she sold the scoop to the National Enquirer. And after the story broke, Perkins took a test. He found out that the story actually was true, but he did continue to hide it from the public, at least until a few weeks prior to his death in 1992. Now, Perkins didn't have very much success with Psycho 3, but he did offer to take a co-director role if Psycho 2 director Richard Franklin would come back. Unfortunately, Franklin was not interested, so they decided to reach out to Pretty Poison director Noel Black, one of Perkins' first successes, but he also declined. And then they moved on to Stuart Gordon. Gordon had just done a 1990 TV movie with Perkins called Daughter of Darkness, but Gordon revered the original Psycho too much to try to, to dare to even attempt a follow-up. Universal decided they were going to pay Perkins well to just act and also promised that he could veto any director that they sought if he had any issue. So he had some approval rights there, which he accepted. Director McGarris, he was working on a TV project at the time for MCA Universal called She-Wolf of London. And that's when he was approached by Ned Nall. 
to see if he would be interested in taking the reins of Psycho 4. Now, Garris originally was disinclined. He had just directed Critters 2. He had also written a draft for The Fly 2, so he, at that point, had wanted to distance himself from intellectual properties that had numbers in their titles. However, after he did read the script for Psycho 4, Garris thought that a prequel seemed a pretty brilliant idea, and it did offer an appealing concept that he might be able to imbue with many interesting visual techniques. Now, because there were already two sequels in the series, the pressure was off to try to live up to the original Psycho, because those films did not. And this being made for Showtime, people who liked it would continue to see it to the very end, and those that didn't could just flip the channel. No money really lost for those subscribers. Garris's friend John Landis, he decided he was going to put in a good word, and he took Perkins and the producers to lunch to tell them why Mick Garris was the right choice to take on Psycho 4. Perkins, after this meeting, gave his blessing to the MCA brass, and Garris gave Landis the radio station manager role in the film as a thank you, while Perkins asked, as a favor to him, to include a part for his best friend and frequent stand-in, Kurt Paul. Kurt Paul plays a a guest, a, a killer, on the radio show that we see before Norman makes his call. Garris agreed with Stefano's script, taking a more somber, serious approach than the campier Psycho sequels. He initially wanted the flashback sequences to be done in black and white. This would be the third time that the director of a Psycho sequel wanted black and white footage to match Psycho, but Universal, again, opposed this choice. Garris then decided he was going to go the opposite direction because he reasoned that, you know, if you think about your memories, there are always in color. They are not black and white. In fact, they are usually more dreamlike and colorful than what we might have experienced in real life. Maybe like a like a film by Dario Argento or, or Mario Bava and their dreamlike qualities. Flashback scenes, he thought, should radiate with bold, exaggerated primary colors and harder contrasts, while contemporary scenes were hazy with soft and muted colors. And they would use a lot of fog machines, something that Landis hated seeing in a radio station. He said, why is there a smoke machine in a radio station? A key casting decision was who was going to play young Norman Bates. Now, in addition to this list that he concocted of uh, teenage actors who might match the description of a young Tony Perkins, Zaloom and Mayfield encouraged that they should look at Henry Thomas, somebody they had worked with while they were production assistants on Richard Franklin's 1984 family thriller called Cloak and Dagger. Garris and the production team decided to fly out and meet Henry Thomas in San Antonio at a restaurant. And when Thomas walked in, Garris knew immediately this was the one. Thomas did happen to remember Mayfield and Zaloom, and he had a great deal of fun with them, and he felt that it was going to be a fun shoot, and he would have a chance to spend time in this brand new amusement park. That was going to be enticing, so he decided to take the part. A great role for him coming right out of high school. Thomas only watched the original Psycho in preparation because he felt that that was closest in age to the portrayal he was going to be doing. He did grow apprehensive about Perkins being on the set watching him as he acted because he feared he was going to be criticized for not doing it right. Thomas sought Perkins for advice before he even shot the first take, so Perkins wanted Thomas to make the part his own. So long as he stayed true to the character of Norman and always asked himself what would Norman do in each situation, it was going to ring true. 
For the role of Norman's mother, they started negotiating with a well-known actress who eventually declined. Unfortunately, I did not get the name of the well-known actress. It was, in fact, I've written an email to Mick Garris to try to get the answer, and unfortunately, it was not available at the time of this recording. They cycled through other actresses before extending a late offer to Olivia Hussey. She didn't have to audition for the role, but time was of the essence, and they believed that she could handle the role. That initial actress, that unnamed, well-known actress, decided to accept once she actually did read the script, but Hussey had already accepted by that point, and it was too late to turn back. Stefano, though, did grovel that he felt that Hussey was not really right for the mother role. She was too limited in range to really convincingly alternate between being a, a seductress as well as an evil bitch, so he says. Although Hussey's Argentinian-British accent did not sound at all like that of Mother in Psycho. She really couldn't perform a good American accent, wasn't even going to try, so Nagaris had to do a little bit of rationalization to make it work because, you know, Mrs. Bates was already voiced as somebody who was much, much older than Norma Bates would have been when Norman kills her. So it did follow that Norma's persona, at least as perceived by Norman, was already off. So if it altered greatly in Norman's mind after her death... It would make sense that he really didn't capture that accent that she has. Hussey did prepare for the role by drawing from her own experience with a man named Christopher Jones. Jones happened to be her schizophrenic ex-boyfriend that she had in the late 1960s after her appearance in Romeo and Juliet. Jones was prone to suddenly attack her for no apparent reason and began to physically and sexually abuse her in some pretty nasty ways. So she drew on that experience for what Norma would do to Norman. Hussey, the mother of two boys herself, she found her intimate scenes with her on-screen son quite difficult to imagine and ended each take apologizing to Henry Thomas for what she had to do with him, assuring him that she was not at all like Norma. Production did begin in June of 1990, just days prior to the Universal Park's official opening. Garris did enjoy the new sound stages there in Orlando, but not the back lot, not now that they were open, because the noise from all of these establishments that were nearby, the cleaning equipment as well during the daytime, the music at night, the nearby highway, he found it all very difficult to try to maintain focus with all of that noise going on. And in addition to that, the tour was coming through constantly. So while he was trying to direct emotional scenes outdoors, hundreds of gawking tourists happened to always be standing around watching their every move. Early in the shoot, Henry Thomas did have a mishap that resulted in a hospital visit. During this scene, Norman was to murder this young and sexually adventurous classmate who was attempting to carouse with Norman. And Garris envisioned the whole scene as this violent metaphor for Norman's view of sex. Norman's knife is kind of a, a replacement for his penis that his mother admonished him from ever using. And the spurts of blood that come about were like the semen. Fireworks would be exploding in the sky, this ironic occurrence that often substituted for sexual climax in films. Although both Thomas and Perkins happened to be left-handed, Norman, as mother, did stab victims with his right hand in the original Psycho film. So for the scene, Thomas was already having to use his so-called weaker hand, and he had to use a real butcher knife to try to stab this small receptacle filled with movie blood covered by a thin sheet of balsa wood. And at some point, he became so over-enthused at his stabbing motions, that in his stabbing, the knife hit the hard bottom of the receptacle. The knife stopped at that moment, but his hand did not, and that gashed open the meat of his hand, 
leaving him bloody and eventually having to wear stitches. And he incurred a bit of nerve damage for the remainder of the shoot and continues to have a scar there to this day. Although they went over the entire script beforehand, Garris did find working with Anthony Perkins to be difficult, sometimes challenging at others, sometimes in education, sometimes it could be fun, but mostly it was difficult. One of their early conflicts came when Garris mentioned to Perkins that he wanted to avoid Norman seeming as campy as he was in the prior sequels. Now, as Perkins felt that he knew Norman more than anybody, he bristled anytime Garris told him to remove the camp in his performance. Garris got the feeling that Perkins started at that point frequently testing him, bordering on bullying him to see if he fully thought out each scene. When Garris gave direction, Perkins would often start voicing his opinion in the opposite direction, and they would go at it, Perkins trying to, to see if Garris really knew what he was talking about. Now, at the end of the film, although Garris does continue to call Perkins the least enjoyable actor he'd ever worked with, he was gratified when Perkins walked up to him after the showing and praised him after seeing the finished film, and he called Psycho 4 the best of the Psycho sequels. Very high praise, considering that Perkins did direct one of those sequels. The cast was sworn to secrecy, just like they were in the original Psycho. Universal claimed that there were multiple endings that were shot that was meant to try to keep people from divulging the ending to the press, because nobody really knew, even though they did not shoot multiple endings, supposedly. Television critics were sent a preview with the climax removed. Post-production was done at Universal in Southern California. Graham Marvell composed the music, mostly using cues that were taken from the original Bernard Herrmann score. Universal did own the rights to that, so it made it a very cost-effective thing. And Garris, he also thought that one of the oversights of the other sequels was not in reusing Herrmann's brilliant score. The trailers for Psycho 4 did play in theaters, and there was also a five-minute promotional featurette that did play on some airline flights. A 900 number offering a trivia contest with a grand prize being a trip to Universal Studios Florida was concocted to try to promote this film. Perkins did not get to participate very much in the promotion because he had to undergo some treatments for his maladies and his desire to avoid media scrutiny about his illness. He also felt fatigue after performing several days of all-night shoots toward the end of the of the shoot, causing him to decline interviews. He also missed the rap party. He was pretty much checked out by the time he got to the end of this in terms of uh, socializing anyway. Psycho 4 premiered on Showtime on November 10th, 1990. It was the first part of Showtime's Psycho Night that was hosted by Janet Lee herself. The second part being a newly remastered showing of Hitchcock's original 1960 film, which was supposedly the first time the film had ever been shown on television uncut without commercials. As far as the uh, overall impact of Psycho 4, while Stefano's screenplay does shed some insights into Norman's past that are interesting... Somehow, for most viewers, it really couldn't overcome the pedestrian nature of witnessing events building toward an outcome that we really already know. Plus, it's pretty disingenuous in its view that Norman is somehow redeemed at the end because he's obviously far from rehabilitated if he's contemplating murdering the woman he loves for carrying his child. Mick Harris does offer a modestly styled sense of direction, though his effort to keep everything grounded does remove some of that deliciously dark comic edge of the original that made the other sequels pretty entertaining, even during some of the bad moments. And that renders Psycho 4 as the least exciting in the series in terms of its execution. Suspense, 
unfortunately is rarely generated. It plays much more like a drama than it does a, a thriller or a horror movie, which will disappoint some people. It's also the least gory of the sequels, the least funny, the least viscerally engaging of the follow-ups, despite having some nudity and that incestuous theme that does spark some things. In the end, Olivia Hussey's casting does serve as a bit of an homage for horror fans. Hussey appeared in the prototypical slasher flick genre that Psycho inspired in 1974's Black Christmas. Henry Thomas, obviously so wholesome in Steven Spielberg's E.T., gives Norman the right mix of pathos, inner confusion, and torment that we do begin to sympathize as well as fear what Norman might do. We never loathe him despite his reprehensible acts, but we are pretty appalled by what he ends up doing. Now, there is a feeling here that Anthony Perkins did view Psycho 4 as his swan song to the character of Norman Bates. There's a suggestion here that the story might continue on without him. From the final fade, we hear a baby crying as it fades to black. Universal did contemplate at some point a follow-up involving Norman's son could eventually be made, but thankfully that never did come about. I think very few fans of Psycho, even the biggest fans, would want to see that Norman is right about the cycle of violence continuing throughout his family. Even though it might mean more money for Universal, it just seemed like a pretty cheap way to go. Psycho 4, it's not really passionate filmmaking. I don't think it's going to appeal very much to non-fans. But at the very least, it is very respectful of the original film, maybe because Stefano's involvement and also Garris's outlook on it. And there are some nuanced portrayals here by Perkins and Thomas and even Olivia Hussey. I disagree with Stefano. I think she's actually pretty good in the role. It does retain a shred of conflicted and tragic humanity underneath. So I can't quite recommend it for non-fans, but for fans of the series, I think it's okay. Not enough for me to give a wholehearted recommendation to, but enough to give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools and talent here to be something more, something more worthwhile. But, you know, this is a made-for-television production in a series that didn't have a lot of high expectations from the studio, so they didn't really back it as much as they would probably a typical movie theater release. All in all, it's probably better than most made-for-TV films, but it as a psycho film, I do think it's my least favorite of them because the other films at least have higher highs. This may not have as low lows as the other sequels, but those high highs do make up for it, I do think, in the end. It's kind of a, a flat line in terms of my interest for most of the film. And that's why I can only give Psycho 4, The Beginning, two and a half stars out of four. Obviously, you might have your own opinions on this. If you hated Psycho 3, you probably do think that Psycho 4 is maybe a step in the right direction, especially if you also hated Psycho 2. So if you have your own opinions on this, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, my Instagram are there. I do think that email is the best way to get in touch if you're so inclined. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, well, it's another made-for-television movie, this time made-for-network television. In fact, it was conceived of, really, as the pilot for a potential new series but somehow kind of mishmashed two episodes into the first movie. And it's called Bates Motel. And I'm not talking about the Bates Motel that kind of came out uh, just a few years ago. I think it started in 2013. I'm talking about Bates Motel from 1987, starring Bud Court, Lori Petty, Moses Gunn, Jason Bateman, and others. 
I'll be covering that on the next episode. It's a film that finally did come out on DVD after being kind of obscure for many years, probably because of the new Bates Motel uh, sparked a little bit of interest in the old properties. I'll get into all the all the details on that on the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we travel around the world in 80s movies. Ha, 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 ha.